Well, good evening. Take your Bible to the book, open to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8 is where we are this evening. We're in verse 29, but for a little bit of context, let me just pick it up in verse 28. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Uh, We're again looking at this passage of Scripture that uh, places before us five great doctrines. Uh, Theologians throughout the years have uh, uh, referred to these as the golden chain of five links or the golden chain of salvation. One writer says this, he says, this is the most comprehensive view of the saving grace of God that can be found in any passage of the Bible. Again, God's golden chain of salvation that stretches from eternity past to eternity future, that begins in the eternal council hall of God before the foundation of the world, before time began. And that's exactly what we're looking at. We're looking at salvation, uh, the eternal plans and purposes of God and the salvation of men from eternity to eternity. Now, the doctrines that unfold here in this five-linked uh, chain, if you will, this golden chain of salvation, are the doctrines of foreknowledge, predestination, the effectual calling, justification, and then glorification. Foreknowledge, predestination, effectual calling, justification, and glorification. And we're looking at salvation uh, from God's perspective. And again, here in the 8th chapter, it's in the context of understanding the security of our salvation in Christ. That God has a plan and a purpose for those who love him, uh, for those who are called according to his purpose. It's an eternal uh, plan. It's bound up in the Father's eternal love for his Son, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's eternal purpose, uh, uh, decreed before time began, again, was to redeem men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation that they would spend the, rejo- the, the remainder of time and then all of eternity worshiping, serving, and, and praising, adoring, loving the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's plan. So God in his great mercy, God in his great compassion for uh, his children, again here in chapter 8, uh, and, uh, demonstrates uh, that great compassion to his children. Here in this uh, passage, he is really declaring to us what he has done for us regarding our salvation. So that we as followers of Christ, we as part of God's household, would be comforted uh, by the truth. So that no matter what comes our way in time, we know that God has ordained our eternal destiny, that nothing can ever stop or thwart God's plans or purposes for our good. And again, that's the context, the, the eternal security of our salvation, to be encouraged as uh, believers in Christ. And again, it really is a tremendously encouraging portion of Scripture. And it's tremendously encouraging to know the truth. Now, I said something along the lines of this morning that sometimes people don't listen to the truth because they have preconceived ideas of the truth. We need to listen to the truth. Peter said, Jesus said, we need to listen to what Jesus says and stop listening to Peter. And Peter needs to sit down and be quiet, right? And, and that's the same thing for us always. We need to hear what the Word of God says because God wants us as his children to be encouraged and comforted by the truth. Now, the last time we started into verse 29, and again, we saw that the ultimate terms of our salvation uh, was or the ultimate issue in terms of our salvation was that God would glorify his son because that's God's chief, chief purpose in the salvation of men. Not just that we get forgiven our sin, but God's chief purpose in the salvation of men is to glorify his son so that the Lord Jesus Christ would be the preeminent one among men. Again, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he, Christ, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now that word firstborn, prototokos, can mean firstborn in the sense of chronology, the first one born and then the second one born. It can mean that, but here it means the position of preeminence. Position of preeminence. In the life of Israel, the firstborn always had a position of preeminence, a place of a privileged status, a place that... uh, uh, required unusual respect for that individual. That, that's the way prototokos is used here, firstborn uh, here in this portion of Scripture. So God's primary purpose in salvation and his eternal plan of redemption is to create a redeemed humanity 
uh, a glorified humanity which over uh, which uh, will take his beloved son and uh, make them make him the object of their affection in which his beloved son the lord jesus christ would rule over that redeemed humanity and be preeminent the firstborn among firstborn among many brethren right the first or the preeminent one uh, speaking of this reality in philippians 2 verse 9 paul says god has highly exalted him christ God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, uh, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. That's preeminence. Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, speaking of Christ. The church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Jesus Christ is the preeminent one. Now, again, you understand that God originally created man and woman to serve him, to worship him, to glorify him in all things. But mankind rebelled against God, and by that rebellion, he alienated himself, uh, and Adam alienated himself from God and alienated the entire human race because of his sin. He brought separation and damnation among uh, on himself and among all of his offspring. But God provides a way of reconciliation. And God provides a way of reconciliation through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. He is the sin bearer. He's to be the sin bearer. And through Christ, God would reconcile himself to sinful humanity. And it's through Christ that, that, that sinners would be made righteous and just to stand in God's sight. So again, the ultimate object of salvation is that the Lord Jesus Christ would have the first place in everything. That he would have a position of preeminence before sinners. Again, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Again, where he would be first in all things. Where he might be, Jesus Christ might be worshipped, praised forever by the brethren. Because that's who Christ is. He's the prototokos. He is the preeminent amongst many brethren. So in that truth, that lies the security of our salvation. That's where the absolute security of our salvation is found. Our ultimate guarantee of our final salvation, because it's wrapped up in the glory of the Son, the glory of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a wonderful truth, that Christ left the glory of heaven. He came to the earth, he put on flesh, he lived amongst men. Uh, he uh, taught them the things of God. He died upon Calvary's cross. He was buried three days later. Uh, he, he rose from the grave, ascended into heaven. And what's the purpose? That he would be the prototokos, that he'd be the firstborn, the preeminent one uh, among many brethren. So again, our salvation is secure because it's tied up in the eternal counsel of God, but it's also tied up in the glory of uh, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and God's desire to glorify his Son. So what if you could lose your salvation? Because some people think that you can do that. What if you could lose our salvation? What if Christ did all the wonderful things that he did by coming to the earth and incarnating himself with no results? Or negative results, right? You lose your salvation. Then that would make Christ firstborn among some brethren. Right? Or maybe Christ would be firstborn amongst a few brethren. You know, the whole idea of, of those statements is just unthinkable. If a true believer could lose his or her salvation, then God would have to fail in his divine purposes and condemn to hell those whom he has sovereignly elected into salvation. If a true believer could lose their salvation, then God who cannot lie would be breaking his eternal covenant that he made with himself and the, uh, the Godhead that he promised before the beginning of time to redeem and call out a saved humanity. If a true believer could lose their salvation, then that means the divine seal that God has placed upon his own children by giving them the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit, that would no longer be valid. But again, all those things are impossible. Because a true believer cannot lose their salvation because the glory of God and the glory of Christ are at stake. The, the promises of God are at stake. And again, I read it to you this morning, but I'll repeat it tonight. God loses none of those whom he calls. God loses none of those whom he calls because his glory demands it. Christ's glory demands it. John 6 and 37. All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast down. John six thirty nine. This is the one of him... Uh, this is the will of him who sent me that all he has given to me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Chapter 8, verse 1. The greatest verse in the Bible. There is now therefore what? How much? No condemnation. All right, there's no condemnation in Christ. We've already been given the person of the Holy Spirit to live within us. We're already adopted in this lifetime into the family of God. We're already his children. We're already fellow heirs with Christ. And God through Christ says he loses no one. 
Those who truly belong to him truly belong to him, but loses no one along the way. So our salvation and our eternal security is not based upon our frail, weak human efforts, but it's based on the eternal plan, the eternal counsels of the Godhead. We said the little children's song last week, I think, or last time I taught on this, we are weak, but he is strong. Right, we're weak, but he's strong. So again, for those whom, verse 29, for those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Now, one commentator says this. He says, immediately we need to realize that this is all about God the Father. God the Father is driving the whole train, the writer says, if you will. It's God the Father who chooses these five links. It's God the Father who forges these five links and his eternal purposes. It's God the Father who sent the Son into the world. It's God the Father who sent the Holy Spirit into the world. It's God the Father who is the architect of his eternal purposes, his sovereign plan. It's all coming from the first person of the Godhead. So God the Father, this is what he's done. God whom he foreknew, he predestined. Right? That word foreknew, those whom God chose, right? Those whom God chose to set apart. Those whom he chose to love. Those who he placed his special distinguishing love on them from all eternity. These people whom he foreknew, he also predestined. I told you the word uh, uh, foreknow foreknow comes from the the prognostico, the word prognostico. It means to know something or to know beforehand. But I also told us that, if you might remember, that we're trapped in time. And, And so to know beforehand means to know, when we understand the phraseology to know beforehand, we think in time categories. So we think it's knowing something in advance. But what we have to understand is that God is eternal. God stands outside or above the bounds of time. So knowledge is not a time issue for God, right, uh, because God is God. He just doesn't know information in advance because he's omniscient. He knows all things, right? God doesn't just know information in advance. He simply knows. He knows all things. And again, it's understandable for us from our perspective because we're locked into time to see the word from the primarily the standpoint of time categories, But I told you, on the other hand, if God is outside of time, and he is, if he's eternal, and he is, if God foreknows something, listen, it's because he predetermined it was going to happen. If God foreknows something, he predetermined it was going to happen. It's that Isaiah 46, verse 9 passage, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Who's driving the train? God is. Who's the sovereign? God is. Who's in charge of the issue of salvation? God is. If you just keep writing that on your test and your answers to your test questions, you'll be fine. Right? We're talking about what God is doing. Now, again, God doesn't simply know beforehand. God knows. God simply knows. And, again, if he foreknows something, it's because he predetermined it will happen. And remember, I told you that divine foreknowledge does not mean that God looks down the corridors of time, as it were, and sees who will believe upon him and who will not believe, and then based upon that knowledge, he chooses whom he will save. That's not what the word means whatsoever. If God were to look down the corridors of time, so to speak, to see who chooses his son, and then when God sees who chooses his son, based on that foresight, he sets predestination in motion for the salvation of men, all that God would see when he looked down the corridors of time would be unbelief. All God would see, if you look down the proverbial quarters of time, as it will, he would see that there was none who would choose his son. That's because of total depravity. That's because of radical corruption. That's because of the blindness of the unconverted mind of man, the unconverted man who can't see. He has eyes, but he can't see. He has ears, but he can't hear. Right? It's the depravity of the human heart. It's the depravity of the human heart that loves sin, that hates God, that hates, that hates uh, God and hates Christ. So again, if God were to look down to the quarters of time, what he would see is that we all like sheep have gone where? Astray. He would see that each of us has turned to his own way. He would see none righteous, not even one. He would see there's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks for God. All God would see is unbelief and rebellion against him and against his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the idea behind the word foreknow really is the idea that God has set his special love upon a person whom he elects or whom he chooses for salvation. And I told you that in in the Bible, the idea of to know often carries with it an idea of special intimacy. Often in the context of speaking of a special love relationship, you see it often used in the the relationship between a husband and wife. So Adam has relations with his wife, or he knew his wife Eve, and and, uh, she bore a son. So the same thing with the idea of foreknew or divine foreknowledge. 
Very simply, it has the idea of God sending his special intimate love upon a people or a, a person or persons whom he chooses. God spending, sending his special love upon uh, on them, making them the objects of his mercy. And not because they're lovable, but because, but because God is rich in mercy. That, that's the idea behind the word foreknew. So God sets his special saving love upon us. And one of the greatest, most wonderful, loving truths ever found anywhere in the Bible, we'll look at it a little bit later, is found in Ephesians 1. I'll just read it and we'll look at it, as I said, in a few moments. But Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. Ephesians 1, verse 4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption of sons, through Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind intention of his will. If somebody comes along, and you probably heard it as well as I have, if somebody comes along and says, I don't believe in the doctrine of predestination, then the truth is they don't believe in the Bible. They don't believe in the Bible. He predestined us. I don't believe in the doctrine of predestination. Well, then you don't believe the Bible. Again, the doctrine of predestination, when understood properly, is the most loving truth that you could ever read or hear of. That God in the past, in eternity past, chose to set his special redeeming love on elect people for no other reason except God chose to do so. Again, look at the text. For those whom he foreknew, those whom he loved in advance, right? Who he placed his special love on, he also predestined. He foreknew. He predestined. The word uh, predestined, poorizo, means to predetermine or decide before him. In the New Testament, it's used of God decreeing from all eternity or foreordaining and approving before him uh, was going to happen. And again, the, the Greek word pro-orizo, pro-orizo is made up of two words, pro, P-R-O, meaning beforehand, and then horizo. Uh, we get our English word horizon. What does the horizon do? Well, the horizon separates. It marks off what you can see from what you can't see. Right? Things that you can see are within the horizon. You look around and you see as far as you can see, as far as possible as to see, and you see trees and cornfields and more cornfields and more cornfields and more cornfields, especially if you're in Ohio, right? You certainly don't see any mountains. You see cornfields, you see farmland, and that's all within the boundary of the horizon. Now, the things that we can't see, they lie beyond the horizon. So the business, if you will, of the horizon is to mark off, to separate, to limit. That's the idea of pro-orizzo. So God the Father has predestined. He's marked out. He is separated. He's set within the circle, the destiny of every person whom he has called according to his purpose. God has predestined every person whom he has called for a particular purpose to a particular destiny, or to a specific end. And that end is that we would be his people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 is helpful. So put a little mark there in your Bible and, and run over real quickly with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter two verse nine. And Peter's going to remind us who we now are as Christians. He says, verse nine, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God, for you not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. At one moment in time, at one part in our lives, we're all not God's people. But now if you're in Christ, now you are God's people. At one point in all of our lives, we were not the objects of God's mercy, but now we've received mercy. What reason? Verse 9 again. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, how do we get there? Go back to First Peter chapter 1. Verse 1. How did we get this in this position, this privileged position? Peter says God chose us for that. First Peter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, 
Cappadocia, Asia, uh, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, here this word foreknowledge is prognosis. The, the, the foreknowledge, the, the forethought of God, the prearrangement of God. That's what it means. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So God himself has separated the called out of humanity, out of the category of, or out of, from that category that is true of all men, that we're all sinners, all separated from God. And the Bible says that God has predestined us. He's placed a circle around us, as it were, and he's made us the objects of his mercy and the objects of his grace. And he has made us who were once not his people his people. He now has made us who are aliens and strangers to be his sons and daughters. He's adopted us into his family. And when did he do this? The Bible says he did it before any of us were ever born. The Bible said he did this before we ever came into the world. The Bible says he set the destiny on those whom he loved eternally. He sealed it. He determined our destination before time began. Now again, why did God do that? Was it because there's something expressly lovely in us that he saw? And the answer, of course, to that question is no. God does what he does because he's God. He's sovereign. He does what he does according to his own good pleasure. Stop and think about it. Back in Romans chapter 4. Paul is speaking there in chapter 4 of the book of Romans. He's talking about the calling of Abram, right? Abram. Out of Ur of the Chaldees, remember? And we know him now by the name of Abraham. But when he was called, he was Abram. He was a pagan. He was a moon worshiper. An idolater in the midst of a land of idolaters. And he knew absolutely nothing about the true and the living God. But God in his mercy and God in his grace came down and he called this devil worshiper to himself. And immediately, this unregenerate man obeyed the sovereign Lord God. Immediately he obeyed him. He went where he was told to go. He worshiped and served him. His life was transformed and changed. And again, at one point in our lives, we're not much different than Abraham. We were all idolaters. We had no knowledge of the living God, the true God. Sinners by birth, sinners by practice, sinners by divine declaration. But God had a plan. God had a plan, and God came down, and God made sure that his eternal plan would not be frustrated by the fact that men like us are sinners, and we have sinned, that all men like us deserve nothing but God's anger and wrath. We deserve to be forever separated from him under his just condemnation. But the true and the living God, he is rich in mercy and great in grace. Therefore, he has an eternal plan to make his son preeminent. And not even the sinfulness of men could thwart the eternal plans and purposes decreed from God or by God out of a heart of love for Christ. Therefore, he chose by his sovereign grace to set his special electing love upon those whom he called to set them apart. To set them apart for a special destiny. Go back to Romans uh, Romans uh, chapter 8. He set them aside for a special destiny that is clearly spelled out here in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined, here it is, to be conformed to the image of his son, so that they, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So again, this is driving us to realize that the ultimate security of our salvation is because, again, God's at work. This is what God's doing. God's in the process of glorifying his son through the salvation of men. And again, God has promised that he's conforming those whom he has called to the image of his son, it says there. Sumorphous is the word conform. And that word has the idea of having the same form or similar, conform to, an uh, image icon. It means an image, a figure, a likeness. If you were to go up in my study in the bell tower, you'd see I have an icon of uh, Charles Spurgeon. I have a bust uh, of Spurgeon. It looks a lot like him. That's what he's talking about. So the idea here is that everyone who is foreknown and predestined will never meet God in condemnation, but rather one day they're going to be glorified, and one day they're going to stand fully and totally conformed or made like Christ, made like God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to be conformed to his image. And the word conformed doesn't speak of superficial likeness, but it speaks to an inward likeness. It speaks to something all the way down to the depths, all the way down to the bone, if you want. 
likeness of essence, not just mere similarity, but likeness of essence. Again, look at the text. For those whom he foreknew, right? Talking about God. God's driving the train. For those whom he foreknew, all right, those whom he chose to love beforehand, he also predestined. He marked them out. He separated them from the beginning. Actually, even before the beginning. To be conformed, to be made in essence, in the inward being like his son, so that the son would be the firstborn of the preeminent among, among many brethren. So what exactly does that mean? What is exactly does it mean to be conformed to the image of the son? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean first. It doesn't mean like that we're going to be like Christ in the sense that one day we're going to be little deities. It doesn't mean that. Because Jesus Christ is the only begotten. Remember that? Only begotten. Monogenes is what the word is. Mono, one. One Genesis. Right? Jesus Christ is the, the only unique one of his kind. He's the only one. There's never going to be another one like him. One who is co-equal, co-eternal with God. One who's the radiance of God's glory. Perfect God and perfect man together. 100% man, 100% God. Right? In one, in one person. He's the monogenes. There's never going to be anybody like him. So we're certainly not going to be little gods. So what does it mean that we're going to be conformed to his image? That means we're going to look like Christ. We're going to be like Christ. We're going to be like God's son. We used to be like who? Adam. If you're paying attention to the whole flow of the book, we used to be like Adam. We used to be dead in our trespasses and sins. We used to be sons of disobedience. We indulged the flesh and the mind. We were children of wrath as the rest. We were rebels. But now in Christ, we are being conformed to the image of his son, conformed to the image of Christ. We are now looking more and more like Christ, holy, blameless, beyond reproach, perfect, just. Again, new creations in Christ. New natures like his, inwardly and outwardly perfected, holy. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding in the mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, metamorphosized, right? Uh, it's a present passive participle. What does that mean? That means it's not something that you do. It's something that's done upon you. It's in the passive. We're being transformed into the same image, the same icon, from glory to glory, just as from the Father of the Spirit. So to be made like Christ in, the, in time is called the process of sanctification. And progressive sanctification is a lifelong process becoming more and more like Christ. And as God continues to conform us to the image of Christ, he continues to chisel away at our character, our old us, who we used to be. He chisels away at our character and our words and our actions and our thoughts, anything and everything that doesn't look like Christ. And he's continuing to pour into us. He's continuing to build Christ's likeness in us. He's transforming us from one level of glory to another level of glory into the image of Christ. Again, verse 28 of the passage says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, who, those who are called according to his purpose. And there really is no greater good for you or I than we become more like Christ. That, that's the greatest good that could ever happen to us. Our attitudes, our actions, our reactions, our words, our goals, our thoughts, our ambitions, dreams, the entirety of, li- of our life. That's what God is in the process of doing. That's what God is after in your life and my life. He wants to make us as much like his son as we can possibly be. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So that's the purposes of God in the salvation of men. That Christ would be exalted, that Christ would come to have a place, a first place in everything, that he that we would be made more like him. John Calvin says this, the son of God became the son of man, that sinful sons of men might become the sons of God. That's a pretty good statement. The son of God became the son of man, that sinful sons of men might become sons of God. We are being transformed in the image of Christ. So again, someone else said this, but Christ came down in order that you and I might go up. Right? Christ came down that you and I might go up. Christ condescended. He went to the dregs. We don't understand that because we do not understand his exalted position and we don't understand our fallen position. He humbled himself to the depths of the dregs by becoming a man. We just go, oh, he became a man. No, he humbled himself. God left eternity. He descended that you and I might ascend into the heights of glory. And be made like him, made like Christ, ultimately glorified. Entirely, when we're glorified, conformed to his image, body and spirit. 
And Christ delivered us from God's wrath and our own sinfulness that we might be like him. And we really need to think upon those things, remember those things, love those things, cherish those things. First John 3 and 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. It's not as we, it is not, has not yet appeared as what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him and we'll see him just as he is. That's the promise. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. Now I want to go back, I want to change gears a bit here, and I want to go back and I want to address some of the objections that people have over this issue, this doctrine of predestination, which again is the second of our five golden links in this chain, and uh, probably is the one that most often bothers the most people. And, and I think what really bothers them more accurately included in the word foreknowledge and the idea of predestination and foreknowledge is probably the term election. People have a hard time with that. That God would set his special electing love upon a special people and save them while overlooking others. So again, the word predestination means that God has determined the specific destiny of those whom he has previously decided should be saved and be made like Christ. But I'm going to say this as a very quick note. You, you look in the scripture and you'll never see the word predestination used to mean that God has predestined certain people to eternal condemnation. It's not used that way, ever. A person is condemned because he or she is a sinner before a holy God, and a person is condemned because they refuse to repent and trust Christ. Stating that another way, uh, the truth of predestination applies only to those who are saved. Because the truth, as Peter states, 2 Peter 3, 9, is the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's the heart of God towards sinners. That they would repent, that they would be the recipients of God's mercy to them through Christ and place their faith in Christ. Now, most of the objection or confusion, I think, over the doctrine of predestination comes from the fact that much of modern evangelicalism is weak theologically, has been taught uh, weak theological truth and just doesn't understand most of modern the, most of modern uh, Christianity has the impression that salvation is predicated on that person's decision to quote unquote accept Jesus. Right? If you accept Jesus, you, know, you just need to accept Jesus. Well, that's not what the Bible says. That's not biblically true, because salvation biblically says that God's in charge. Right? Salvation begins with God. And we who are believers, we're not Christians because we, quote-unquote, accepted Jesus. We're Christians because of what God decided and what God determined before the foundation of the world. And the only way that we could ever choose Jesus Christ in time is because he first chose us. But we tend to be so subjective. I talk about that all the time. We're all subjective. And, and we, te- we tend to see salvation primarily from our standpoint, primarily from our vantage point, our perspective. But our perspective is wrong. We, we often look at our salvation in the same manner as a guy who holds up a penny. And I know you've done this when you're a kid. You take a little penny and you put it up to your eye like that and you go, look how big my penny is. I just blocked out the entire sun. Right? You ever do that as a kid? Look how big my penny is. Right? But our perspective is wrong. And very often we see our salvation in the same incorrect manner. Just like we're holding that penny up against our eye. And we shout out, look how, look how big my penny is. Look how big, my, my penny is bigger than the sun. And again, when the man holds up a penny against his eye and says, well, <clears throat> the sun is blocked out, uh, again, his perspective is entirely wrong because his penny is not bigger than the sun. And so when we do that on a theological level, when we say, look how big my penny is, we're saying, look how I accepted Jesus. The perspective is backwards. So the passage of scripture before us gives us a different perspective. Instead of from the guy's perspective, the person's perspective, looking through the penny, we're looking, the sun is looking down upon the penny. That's the right perspective. That's a better perspective. In the issue of salvation from God's standpoint, from all eternity. And far from being a doctrine of terror in the hand of a maniacal God, as some would have you believe, the doctrine of predestination comes from the heart of a God who is merciful, kind, gracious, and loving. The doctrine of predestination comes from the heart of our God who is merciful, kind, gracious, and loving. Now, there's all kinds of nonsensical chatter. Now, you can read it on the Internet, which I'd encourage you not to do, and you can read it in books, which I'd probably encourage you not to do either. All kinds of shocking statements 
against the doctrine of predestination. Some of them made by prominent evangelicals. I'll just read a couple to you. And i got like a page and a half of them here, so I don't know how many I'll read. I'll read a few. One well-known author who left behind some books. <laughs> I wrote many other books. Said this, to suggest that the merciful, long-suffering, gracious, and loving God of the Bible would invent a dreadful doctrine like this predestination, <clears throat> which would have us believe in an act of grace to select certain people for heaven by the exclusion of others for hell comes perilously close to blasphemy. Another from a ministry writes this, he says, the flawed, and this, listen to his words, the flawed theology of pre-selection, that's what he calls it, is an attempt to eliminate man's capacity to exercise free will, which, God, which reduces God's sovereign love to an act of a mere dictator. Another says, this doctrine of predestination makes our Heavenly Father look like the worst despot. Another who's the president of a theological university, a small theological university in Texas, says this, the doctrine of predestination or election is the most unreasonable, incongruous, self-contradictory, man-belittling, man-belittling and God-dishonoring scheme of theology that ever appeared in Christian thought. No one can accept its contradictorily, mutually exclusive proposition without intellectual self-debasement. It holds up self-centered, selfish, heartless, remorseful tyrant for God and bids us to worship him. Calvary Chapel pastor writes this. He says, five points of Calvinism, which of course would include the doctrines of election and predestination, makes God a monster who eternally tortures innocent children. It removes the hope of consolation from the gospel. It limits the atoning work of Christ. It resists evangelism and stirs up arguments of division and promotes a small, angry, judgmental God rather than a large-hearted God of the Bible. Another says to say that the sovereign God chooses who will be saved is the most twisted thing I've ever read that makes God a monster no better than a pagan idol. Another, this doctrine makes God a diabolical monster and reduces man who was created in the image of God to a mere robot. And another author who I'm sure some of you have read, Dave Hunt, written some things that are helpful. He says, this doctrine misrepresents God as this doctrine's misrepresentation of God has caused many to turn away from God of the Bible as from a monster. I mean, it just goes on and on. God's a monster. Somehow, doctrine of predestination, doctrine of election makes God a monster. You know, these kind of severe, over-the-top statements are made by a lot of people in the evangelical world. And we're not talking about illiterate people. We're not talking about people who have a limited knowledge of, or limited understanding. We're talking about a lot of people in Christendom that are ministers and pastors, uh, that are well-known leaders. But the doctrine of predestination is clearly taught in the Bible. It's taught in the Scripture. It's very easy to make up straw man arguments and to tear down those straw men. And again, the authority is not your favorite writer. The authority is always the Word of God. What does God's Word say? Peter said, Jesus said, Peter said, Jesus said. Peter's not listening to what Jesus is saying. And there's a lot of people across evangelicalism that are not listening to what Jesus says on a whole lot of issues because they've already made up their mind what they want to believe in. And that's not indifferent from a lot of people caught in pagan religions who've already made up their minds what they think about God and who God is and what it takes them to make themselves right with God. And the Bible says you can't do anything to make yourself right with God. We're all the recipients of his grace and mercy, not the things that we've done or not done. Either the authority is the Bible or we're the authority. And all these notions of uh, skeptics and critics of this doctrine, that somehow predestination is unfair or unjust, listen, the truth is not measured by our understanding of what's fair. The truth is God's word. And God's word sets the standard for truth. God's word reveals truth to us, or God himself reveals truth to us in his word. And we have to admit that our understanding of virtually everything in the world is warped and twisted because of our own sinfulness. God says in uh, Psalm 50, verse 21, you thought I was altogether like you. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people do, but I'm not. He's not, right? You, you thought I was altogether like you, Isaiah fifty-five eight. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For heavens, whereas the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Again, I think that's the key to understanding difficult biblical doctrine. God has His ways, God's thoughts. Uh, again, they're incomprehensible, they're unresolvable, inscrutable, but they're truth. Uh, that great benediction at the end of the eleventh chapter of Romans. Uh, verse 33 says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom of God, and how unsearchable his judgments, unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of our Lord? Who became his counselor? Who could know how God thinks? Who could be so bold as to tell God how he ought to think? From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God is infinite. He's infinitely holy. His nature is holy. He's infinitely pure and just and perfect. He's morally flawless. In his perfection, and whatever he says is truth, and whatever he does is just and perfect. The, the Puritan uh, writer William Perkins said this, We must not think that God does a thing because it's good and right, but rather the thing is good and right because God does it. That's the perspective. We must not think that God does a thing because it's good and right, but rather the thing that God does is right because God does it. The Creator owes nothing to the creation. Right? The creator owes nothing to the creature, nothing to the creation, who can't understand his ways, who can't understand his mind, his mind, who can't be his counselor. And how could you ever call God unjust or ever call God a monster for choosing to save some when none of us deserve to be saved? And as to the issue of fairness, which has completely overrun the entire culture and seeped its way into the Christian world, unfortunately, salvation never has anything to do with fairness. That's not fair. That's not fair. It's not fair that God chose this person, didn't choose that person. That's not fair. Listen, when it comes to the issue of salvation, you and I don't want fair. We don't want fair. Election and predestination is rooted in grace. Fair means judgment. Salvation is rooted in God's kindness. It comes from a heart of our God who's merciful, kind, gracious, and loving. Again, put a mark there and go to uh, the book of Ephesians. Chapter 1. And just listen. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be a Greek exegete. Just listen. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. It doesn't sound too terrifying or maniacal to me, right? Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass. Why? According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, <clears throat> according to the kind intention which he purposed in him, or purposed in Christ. Drop down to verse 11. Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who are first to hope in Christ, we be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view that a redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the state, and what are the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Again, it doesn't seem to me anything there to suggest that God is some kind of maniacal God who's trying to work the bad, the the worst against his people. I don't see that anywhere. In fact, if you drop down to chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, 
according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He says, Among them we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one may boast. So again, the doctrines of election, predestination, foreknowledge, they are doctrines that reveal to us, put on display to us, God's mercy, God's grace, God's wonderful love towards us as sinners. So let me give you very quickly the three top objections that people have to these, to this doctrine of predestination. Objection number one. And again, these are the top three, I think. If you believe in predestination, you make salvation arbitrary and God a tyrant. Right? You, you make salvation arbitrary and God a tyrant. So we'll take them. There's two of them here. We'll take the second one first. Does the doctrine of predestination make God a tyrant, crushing justice by haphazardly saving some and then damning others? When it comes to the issue of salvation, again, justice is not something we want. It doesn't mean that God is not a God of justice, because he is. But in the salvation of men, he has found a way not only to violate, not violate his justice and not violate his holiness, he has found a way to forgive men. And he's done that by judging sin through the body of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, neither violating his justice nor his holiness in the salvation of sinners. And again, when we are addressing the issue of salvation, the argument is often raised again that God's not just in the saving of some and then not saving others. That's the issue here in the objection. But again, the accusation is completely fallacious. It's wrong. Again, if you want justice in the realm of mankind for the issue of salvation that all men would ever receive is eternal condemnation for the sin, that would be just. Because God's justice, all God's justice can do is condemn us. In order to be saved, what do we need? Mercy. All God's justice would do is condemn us. In order to be saved, we need mercy. And that's what election and predestination is about. Predestination is God showing his mercy to whom he shows mercy. And mercy has been defined as compassion for the miserable. I like that. Compassion for the miserable. That's all men in sin. We're miserable condemned under God's wrath. But by the all-atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God has provided a way that he might exercise his mercy towards the sons of men in harmony with the demands of his true righteousness. Romans 9, verse 15, he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And God is tremendously merciful on those whom he chooses. On those whom he'll have compassion on, Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, may it never be. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel of honorable use and the other for common use? And Paul is saying, look, you need to be very careful with your words, with your thoughts, that you don't blaspheme God and charge him with injustice because there's no injustice in him. Paul says that's not only irrational, it's arrogant and perhaps even dangerous for men to question God's sovereign grace and his sovereign choice of sinners whom he chooses to save. As the sovereign, the one who's in charge, he has the right to pick. He has the right to choose from the lot of mankind. This is it, right? This is a bowl. This is the lot of mankind. This is all mankind. And all mankind in this bowl are what? All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So as the sovereign, he has the right to show mercy on whom he shows mercy. He has the right as the sovereign to show grace and kindness to those whom he chooses to elect out of that group. 
And as far as salvation being arbitrary from our standpoint, it makes no sense that God would choose one person then not choose another person. That's, again, entirely from our perspective. We don't understand what God does because fill in the, fill in the blank. We're not, we're not God. Thank you very much. <laughs> right? We don't have the mind of God. We don't understand what God does because we're not God. We don't understand why God fully chooses to save some and doesn't save others. It doesn't mean that from God's choice, the decision is arbitrary. Because, again, God has full well known his eternal plan and purpose. According to his purpose, he works all things out of the counsel of his will, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of the glory of his grace. God can choose from who he chooses to elect. Again, I said biblically, and I looked it up just to make sure I was correct, and I actually ran a search on the Greek word, and, I, and there's nowhere in the New Testament that you'll ever use the word, see the word predestined for condemnation or damnation. It's always election under the mercy of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God. That's what the Bible teaches. Objection number two in my short list here, if you believe in predestination, then you deny human freedom. Right? You've heard that. If you believe in predestination, you deny human freedom. But again, that's an objection that is based wrongly on understanding human freedom and human ability. And again, the Bible very clearly teaches all have sinned and all fall short of the glory. We're all fallen creatures. Do we have the ability and the freedom in and of ourselves to choose God? Some people say yes, but the Bible says unequivocally no. The Bible says, Romans 3, 9, we are all under sin. As it is written, verse 10, there's none righteous, not even one. Verse 11, there's none who understands. There's none, no one who seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's none who does good, not even one. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, the Bible says, the mindset of the flesh is hostile towards God. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're foolish to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised or spiritually discerned. I know there's a whole lot of people that like to run around talking about their freedom, talking about their supposed free will to choose God, but they don't understand their position biblically before God. They don't understand the depth of their own depravity. They're not listening to what God says about them. And the truth is, the doctrines of predestination for ordination don't take away man's freedom. They actually restore it. Because the Bible teaches that those who are predestined, those who are foreknown, have been delivered from sin's bondage and now are set free. Delivered from sin's bondage and now set free to serve him. The natural man, the unbeliever, the person who doesn't know God or doesn't know Christ, hates God and hates Christ. Supposedly, that person is concerned about losing their freedom. And if these doctrines that I'm talking about are true, and they certainly are biblically, they're not free in any sense of the matter. The Bible says the unregenerate man, the unsaved man, the unbeliever is a slave to sin. Romans 6, verse 16. Do you know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness, verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the form, from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and have been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. There's no freedom for the unconverted man, for the, for, for the unsaved individual, only bondage. And as to this issue that supposedly predestination destroys a person's freedom, uh, on a practical level, by just way of observation... If you wanted to see if that was true, all you'd have to do is look no further than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to see the, the fallacy of that argument, because certainly there's no person in all of human history that's more clearly been called, elect, chosen, predestined to a specific task and purpose than when you look at the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's never been, now or ever will be, a more free person than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in all the universe. So the idea that predestination destroys a person's freedom is just fallacious. The argument that predestination turns God into a tyrant and men into slaves, mere robots, robbing of, of, of their freedom, again, is a false argument. If we're going to understand biblical truth, catch this one now, I'll go slow. If we're going to understand biblical truth, then we probably ought to read the Bible. 
and not books about people who are making up fallacious arguments. Straw men. Right? You understand? I build a straw man and I knock it over. Oh, look, see? No. How about what the Bible says? How about our perspective be from the sun's view, not the penny in front of your forehead? Again, the fact is that predestination displays God's grace, mercy, love, his compassion for a sinful humanity. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Predestination sets men free from slavery, brings them from spiritual death and bondage into spiritual life and freedom. That's the truth biblically. And the last uh, objection to this whole argument of the doctrine of predestination is you destroy the motivation for evangelism. You destroy the motivation for evangelism. So why would you labor to save those whom God has determined beforehand that he's going to save anyway? And again, that's another just fallacious argument. I would suggest to you that the doctrines of predestination, um, instead of destroying evangelism, actually do the very opposite. It encourages evangelism. It makes evangelism easier in the sense of that evangelism is ultimately 100% effective in doing exactly what God wants to do with the proclamation of the gospel. That's why Paul said in 2 Timothy 2 and 10, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, the elect. I endure all things for the sake of those who are elect so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. It's true biblically that uh, the electing love of God has uh, put his stamp on people before time began, but we do live in time and in time we have to respond to the truth. I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, here it is, so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So in order for men to come to faith, the elect to come in faith in time, the chosen to come in faith in time, they have to hear the gospel. And they have to respond to the gospel by faith. Romans 10 and 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So to answer the question specifically, why would you labor to save those whom God has uh, determined already beforehand to save? Because God commands it. God commands us to go. To make disciples, to proclaim the gospel. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I command you. And, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You go because God commands it. Romans 10 and 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord... Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14 of that chapter, Romans 10. How will they call upon him they have not heard? Or how will they call upon him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of uh, uh, good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? Verse 17 again, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Right? God, God not ordains the, the end, salvation. God ordains the means. And it's through the proclamation of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel of grace. But I guess you could answer this from another vantage point if you wanted. Again, the argument, if you believe in the doctrine of predestination, you're going to destroy the motivation for evangelism. Why would you go and do this thing? God's already determined who's going to save beforehand. For the sake of argument, let's just suppose that God does not elect or God doesn't choose anybody for salvation. Let's just, for the sake of argument, suppose that God is very concerned about man's freedom, therefore he doesn't want to interfere with men whatsoever. He does not want to bring spiritual life to men, rather he just leaves them where they're at, spiritually dead without any life. And he in no way attempts to break down their hard hearts of unbelief. He leaves them like they are. He in no way enables them to respond to the gospel by faith because he doesn't want to be a tyrant. And he doesn't want men to be his slaves. So here's the question, if we live in that world. What hope do you think the sinner has who hates God, 
who cannot receive the things of God, who will not and cannot seek God on his own, what hope do you think the sinner will have if God leaves him to his so-called freedom? You want to take a shot at it? Not much. You can write that on your test question. Not much. God drives a train and not much hope. Let's suppose that the only way that a man can come to salvation is through the technique or the skill or the speaking ability of the preacher in proclaiming the gospel, the skill of the evangelist. And again, what hope do you think the sinner has in coming to faith in Christ if you or I as gospel heralds or gospel evangelists, if we're the ones who have to do all the work? Man, I just got to find a way and I just got to get the right message, right? What hope does that person have if they're counting on us to reach down into their stony, cold, dead hearts of unbelief, to speak to those who have wicked hearts that are incapable of understanding, listening, or believing on their own, who are not seeking for God, and will never on their own come to God. How will we reach them if they're dependent upon us? Again, if salvation depends upon us, the gospel heralds. And if salvation depends upon us, the gospel heralds what? What a great responsibility. Not just a great responsibility, but a terrifying realization that should come over all of us if God doesn't foreknow and predestine men and women to salvation. And and the responsibility lies entirely with us. Because what if you do something wrong? What if you say something wrong? What, What if you give the wrong answer? What if you mess up? Now you're responsible for that sinner remaining lost for all of eternity. Now you're responsible for their eternal damnation. So I think not believing in the doctrines of predestination is tremendously encouraging, tremendously helpful to the issue of evangelism, right? Wrong, right? If that was true, then if predestination, divine foreknowledge weren't true, we would all need to be what? Absolutely silent. To make sure we don't mess things up, we don't say the wrong thing. So that we're not responsible for saying the wrong thing that causes somebody to lose their eternal salvation. But the truth is we can be thankful that the doctrines of predestination, divine foreknowledge, election, they're all true. The responsibility for conversion is not upon the evangelist. It lies within the sovereign purpose and the internal counsels of God himself. Our responsibility is just to be what? Faithful. Just be faithful. Take those opportunities that God provides. Be faithful. Don't cower, don't deny Christ, don't run. Just be faithful. And again, if somebody comes along and says, I don't believe in doctrine of predestination, then the truth is they don't believe what? They don't believe the Bible. And again, for those people who don't like these doctrines, they run around and say they're not true. When indeed they are true, because it's clearly presented in the Bible, it makes no more sense than a man who says he doesn't believe in gravity than drops a rock on his toe just to prove he doesn't believe in gravity, or a guy who says, I don't believe in gravity, then jumps out the back end of an airplane at 30,000 feet. Just saying that you don't believe something doesn't necessarily make it not so. Just saying something doesn't make your statement factual. If you don't believe in the doctrine of gravity, that doesn't mean it won't hurt when you come in contact with reality at 30,000 feet. So all these arguments against divine foreknowledge, predestination, they're all false arguments. The Bible says that God is rich in mercy and grace, that God has determined before time began to place a special electing love on sinners of his own choosing. The Bible says that he marked them out and determined that they are going to be just like his son, the dear Lord Jesus Christ, holy and blameless, no longer like Adam, but like Christ. And the reason that God has done this is because he is a God of great love, great grace, and great mercy. And he does what he does according to his will, and he chooses to redeem whom he chooses to redeem to the praise of the glory of his grace. And he has a plan, an eternal plan that he's working out in time to make his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the preeminent one. And God has elected some men to be saved in order that Jesus Christ might be glorified, that men might come to faith, and that men might worship and praise and adore and love him for all of time and for all eternity. 
And therefore, when we go and share the gospel, we can be bold in our proclamation, be relaxed, knowing that our efforts aren't the issue. It's the sovereign work of God, the grace of God in the heart of the sinner as the truth is proclaimed. And when you look at these doctrines from a biblical vantage point, predestination, foreknowledge, election, whatever, they're just wonderful truths, aren't they? They just magnify the glory of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God. Allows us to say what a great God we have and what a great Savior we have in Jesus Christ. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for that great Savior, for that great salvation. We're thankful that you're in charge of all things, that you have loved us before time began, because we certainly wouldn't love you in time. And we're thankful that you work all things together for our good, for those who love you, those who've been called by your purpose, those whom you foreknew and predestined to become conformed to the image of your Son, so that he would be the preeminent one amongst many brethren. And those who you predestined, you called, and those who you called, you also justified. And those who you justified, you have glorified. That's the destination of all of your children. Glory with you, our God, and with Christ our Savior. We just bow before you and praise you and thank you for your word and your wonderful truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.